Along the way, I also realized just how important it is to do outreach. Uh, so to talk about what I do with the public, both to share knowledge, but also to motivate people to follow their dreams, even though there are many obstacles in the way. And also, I feel responsibility as a scientist to tell people what money invested into science is going towards, how it's actually helping humanity, and, and hopefully to also open their eyes for um, how science is very useful. And especially in this day and age with climate change and all these things happening, we really need to be able to work with the public much more uh, as scientists and help make this world be a better place. Hi, smart community friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Smart Community Podcast. It's Ellen here, the producer, stepping in for Zoe to tell you about this fascinating conversation with Dr. Michaela Muzalova, an astrobiologist, speaker, analog astronaut, and author. Michaela has been conducting space-related research at institutions around the world and was the director of High Seas and commander of over 30 simulated missions to the Moon and Mars in collaboration with NASA and many other international organisations. She is currently a visiting professor at the Slovak University of Technology, global faculty at the International Space University, and head of research of the space technology company Needronics. Michaela also writes for Space.com and co-authored her biography, A Woman from Mars. In this episode, Michaela tells us all about her passion for space and for life on Earth and how she got into this space space, as well as some of the challenges she's had to overcome to pursue this dream. She tells us about why it's so important to share with the public how science is helping humanity and how diversity and also food have both been key to the success of the missions she's been involved with. Michaela then shares about some of the projects she's worked on, including the Astro 7 Summits, which is focused on performing research related to life in space and also on extreme environments on Earth. Michaela and Zoe talk about how to link space exploration science with climate change, as well as what Michaela thinks will happen on the first missions of humans living on Mars. They then discuss the emerging trend of commercial investment in space and especially in things like rockets, but why it's not just rockets that make successful missions. Michaela shares with us her concerns about the commercial space race potentially taking unnecessary risks for the sake of meeting goals and boosting egos. Zoe and Michaela finish their chat talking about whether there really is life on other planets and Michaela tells us about what she thinks the likelihood of finding it is. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Michaela. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I am very well. I am very, very excited to have you on the podcast today. Let's just jump straight in. Can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? So I'm an astrobiologist. That means I'm looking for life in space to understand whether there are basically aliens out there, but also to understand how life could have started here on Earth, and also what is the potential of us humans living somewhere beyond Earth. And my passion is very much about that, basically exploring space, learning more about the universe, but also us as humans and our, our place in the universe. 
But at the same time, I'm also very passionate about our environment and Earth. And uh, especially now with climate change, it seems like an even more pressing issue. So lately, I've been kind of combining both passions and actually started a, a brand new project called Astro 7 Summits, where I'm both doing research related to space, particularly looking at life that can survive in extreme environments, so-called extremophiles, to see whether we can learn about the limits of life on Earth and to see whether similar extreme life forms could exist elsewhere in space, but also to point out you know, how our environment is changing, even in very fragile and extreme environments like the summits of the tallest mountains on Earth. Yeah, wow. I'm so excited to dive into some of that in more detail. Um, fascinating stuff. And as I mentioned in the pre-chat, I've been following along LinkedIn, uh, following along you on LinkedIn for, for years now. It's always amazing to see just some, yeah, the really cool things that you're doing and I guess your passion shining through that as well. So yeah, really excited to have you on the podcast today. I know we're going to go broad first and then we'll go into some of the projects and things that you work on. So let's go broad and what is a smart community to you? Well, thank you very much, first of all, for, for what you said. I'm glad uh, my posts have been interesting. <laughs> Hopefully I'll continue in that way. The smart community, you know, I'm no no expert in this, but from what I understand, I feel like it's a combination of sensors and technology in general studying how humans say live in a city interact basically what are the important factors that in a way control human population or influence it in some uh, shape or form and then using that information to implement strategies and new technologies and, and ways to make cities or communities in general work better so kind of a combination of using technology to understand communities better communication between the different people and organizations that could actually make a difference to those communities and then implementing that potentially through more technology to make the communities a, a better place. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think, um, I mean, the reason I really wanted you to come on the podcast today is because from a, like the stuff that you're, you're doing, obviously using new technologies, you're forging new grounds. And I just think even some of yeah, the things that you'll be learning or the things that we've learned here on earth that then can be applied somewhere else are really fascinating. So I think you fit very nicely into the space, uh, even though it may not, you know, be exactly what some of the other people on the podcast talk about. But I think bringing in those new ideas is really important. And yeah, these, you know, kind of big, wild ideas that most people may not be even thinking about, like, you know, thinking about um, life on another planet and those type of things. And the other thing I've been thinking about a lot, and um, I know we're really kind of at the well, not even the beginning, beginning, but just thinking about, you know, actually sustaining life on Earth and it's more like that science, kind of deep ingrained. But thinking about as a community, then if we did end up somewhere else, how do you foster that community and build that again as well? And I think from a smart community perspective, we have to start, we'll have to start with those enablers of tech and data, which is great, but then those human elements as well are going to be so important moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, okay. Well, I want to actually go back a little bit. So from your background, how did you actually get into this space and, and why, why is it so interesting for you to be in this space? Oh, wow. It's a very long story and I'll try and be as brief as I can, but it started off basically with a childhood dream. Um, since I was eight, I've been dreaming of becoming an astronaut and um, going to space myself to look for life in space. And 
And why that fascinates me so much, you can't quite explain. I think it's just that unknown, this question that humanity has had for centuries and millennia, and we still don't know the answer to, is there other life um, you know, in our solar system and beyond? How did life originate here? And yeah, can we humans live somewhere beyond Earth? And we still don't have the answers to any of those questions, but we've gotten so much closer to answering them and narrowing some possibilities down, uh, which I find very fascinating. But yeah, it's something that I've been pursuing since I was a little girl, but I faced a lot of obstacles along the way, mainly uh, the fact that I had to finance all of my studies myself because my parents couldn't afford to help me in that way. So it meant starting uh, to have multiple jobs age 15. And throughout university years, I also had sometimes three part-time jobs uh, to be able to um, both pay for my studies, but just my existence living in cities like London and Los Angeles, where I was doing my studies. It was very expensive. And of course, also, I tried to get the best possible grades to get as many scholarships as possible to help pay for things. So most of my life, uh, or let's say until recently, I just spent a lot of time working um, to pursue this dream and and make it happen. It led me to working at NASA when I was 21. And since then, I've been working with NASA in different ways. Until recently, I was the director of a facility called HICES. It's a station on the volcano Mauna Loa in Hawaii, where we simulate what it would be like to live on the moon or Mars. And there I ran over 40 simulated space missions, um, of which I was the commander of over 30. <laughs> So uh, that was a whole other uh, experience for me, especially because in many ways it was like living my childhood dream. I got to do both astrobiology research, but also to go around wearing a spacesuit and, and living as if I were not on another planet. And so, yeah, you know, my, my life has had some ups and downs, but I've uh, been you know trying to pursue this dream. And along the way, I also realized just how important it is to do outreach. Uh, so to talk about what I do with the public, both to share knowledge, but also to motivate people to follow their dreams, even though there are many obstacles in the way. And also, I feel responsibility as a scientist to tell people, you know, what money uh, invested into science is going towards, how it's actually helping humanity, and, and hopefully to also open their eyes for um, how science is very useful. And especially in this day and age with climate change and all these things happening, we really need to be able to work with the public much more uh, as scientists and, and help make this world be a better place. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think, you know, we're all humans at the end of the day, so sharing our stories is really important. But also, yeah, like to be that voice to share what we're doing as professionals. Um, I'm not a scientist, engineer, so we also need to share, I guess, with the, the public, right? And I, I do think, um, as, you, as you said, speaking the language of, you know, we might be able to have a conversation about certain elements, but if the community can't interact with that, if we need to, them to take action, there's a completely different art or, a, you know, that translation to actually make it accessible. And it does fall on us sometimes to be able to do that as well as do the, the science or the engineer or whatever it happens to be. So, yeah, no, that's, I love that because, I mean, it's one of the reasons I started the podcast because I really wanted to make this smart city space, which are now called smart community space, really accessible and have all those ideas and people listening to both the information that we will share today, but also the stories behind the humans as well, because again, we need more people to buck the status quo and actually be able to, you know, live out that dream, even if there are obstacles in our way. So appreciate you coming on today. 
Definitely. And I think uh, maybe I'll just mention briefly um, <laughs> a factor I forgot to mention was that, you know, I'm from Slovakia, uh, a country that doesn't have much of a space program going on, definitely has much more now going on than it had uh, when I was a little girl. And that was another important factor in, you know, how my life kind of developed because I had to go abroad to pursue this dream and, and faced even more obstacles because of being a foreigner and having to get visas and all these things to and be able to pursue my studies and then the different types of work I wanted to do. And so actually in the middle of my kind of personal path, I decided to go back home to Slovakia to try and make changes there. And that's where I kind of really learned the importance of working with the community on different levels. And so both with a grassroots kind of approach where we would work as a community of young people to try and convince the public about the importance of investing in, in this case, in the space sector, and to show how much potential we have as a country to succeed in that sector. So that was a very important part. But at the same time, I had to work with the, the higher ups, the politicians and decision makers uh, to convince them why it's worth investing into this, what it will bring to the country, what doors it will open to scientists, um, companies and, and people in general. And it was really there kind of combining this effort with the community as a whole at these different levels that we were actually able to make big changes in the country, uh, myself combined with many others through different organizations and, and universities. And so now Slovakia is an associate member of the European Space Agency. We went like so far ahead with, with really helping my country uh, changing for the better in this way, but it wouldn't be possible without this multi-level approach. And again, the community wanting these kinds of changes and therefore understanding you know, why they are good for them in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a really great example too. And again, you know, applying it to the space sector, but thinking about from a community perspective, you knew that, you know, you had to get both the people on the ground, you know, that grassroots. Um, so you, you would, you know, obviously explain it to them in a certain type of way. The same, the message is the same, but then it's like different when you're then talking to the, that kind of top down approach as well, because you actually do need both to then create, you know, substantial change. And one can kind of, push the other, but it is like this kind of balance of both, I think, um, from my experience as well. So, yeah, I think that's a really great example. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the projects and things that you've been working on or have been doing in the past as well as now. Obviously, the high seas one is something that's you touched on a little bit. So keen to hear more about that and then other projects that you've been working on too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, High Seas is one of uh, several facilities around the world where uh, people are trying to prepare humanity for living on another planet, whether it's the moon or Mars or potentially even some other places uh, in the universe. But usually those are the kind of two main kind of environments that uh, they try to simulate. And so what that means, uh, these facilities usually consist of a small building of some sort that's, that's very confined, limited in space. Each crew member, there's usually about six people, only gets a small amount of personal space to live in, and the rest is basically communal space. To go outside, you have to wear a spacesuit, just like if you were on the moon or Mars, because the outside environment would kill you otherwise. When you're in the station, you have limited supplies of everything, just like if you were to imagine you know, the first mission to the moon or Mars, that's there to stay, not just to go there and plant a flag and take a few samples like they did during the Apollo missions. But missions intended for a longer duration stay of humans on that particular planetary body. So with those missions, you have to bring a certain amount of food, water, and other materials to survive, including oxygen. 
And uh, so we're trying to train the people to be able to work well with this limited amount of resources, uh, how to manage um, different crisis situations where, for example, one of those resources may run out for whatever reason, a technical problem or someone mismanaged the food supply or, or whatever it is. So that's very much part of what we're trying to study here is what would those first missions to the moon or Mars look like when people would be kind of on their own for longer periods of time, trying to both just survive on these planetary bodies, but also to do research and ideally have a successful mission and then come back home successfully. And with the moon, you know, it's fairly close by space standards. We've been there before. Mars is a whole other challenge. And that's why that's still pretty far in the future. And it is much more difficult to simulate because we have to impose things like time delays when communicating between Earth and Mars. Usually we're talking about a 20-minute time delay. So it takes at least 20 minutes from for an email from Mars to get to Earth, and then another 20 minutes for a response to go back to Mars. And that means even in a crisis situation, it would take at least 40 minutes to get help from Earth. And therefore, the, the Martian crews have to be much more autonomous and find ways to survive without help from Earth. And so there's all these sorts of things that we're trying to recreate and have people, researchers, uh, usually or, or volunteers for these types of missions work with. And then we also study the psychological aspects of what are the typical kinds of problems that arise during these very stressful and limited conditions for humans and what are the best ways to deal with those challenges. Oh, so fascinating. What are some of the things that surprise you? Like, you know, there obviously be things that you just go, oh, yes, that makes sense that that happened or, or you know, whatever, or somebody reacted in that way or whatever the case is. But what are some of the surprising elements, I suppose, that you've experienced? Um, so for me personally, I've done so many of these missions that I thought that I would just be bored after a while. You know? Nothing surprises you anymore. <laughs> yeah, but actually what always surprised me in the end when I think back are the humans, you know, uh, you'd think that the kind of interactions would be similar with every mission and uh, even kind of the data we get from all of them would have a certain pattern. But really, uh, every person is so different. And then when you mix them together, even a small group like six people, you often get very different results or you just uh, the people keep on surprising you in some shape or form. And the thing I, I discovered by doing a lot of these missions and by on purpose making the crews be as diverse as possible is that actually diversity is one of the keys to success of these missions. Uh, in the past, crew members would be selected by you know being usually scientists, engineers, doctors, or some kind of expertise along those lines that's more typical for astronauts as we know them these days. But when I was running these missions, I would on purpose try and choose people from different areas uh, to have at least one quote unquote, wild card, someone that was trained in a different way so they could bring a different perspective to the group. And that way we could all kind of learn something from each other, but also when there would be a, a challenge or some kind of problematic situation, this person could help us find a different way to problem solve that. And so this ended up being more and more successful. I would not only have wild cards from, let's say, the the um, technical expertise point of view, but also in terms of cultural diversity, always try to make the crews be as diverse in that sense as well, different cultures, ethnicities, um, religions, LGBTQ plus people, and so on. 
And really, the more diverse the crew, the more successful the mission was. And that is not something that was expected at, the, at first. And I think some of my colleagues thought that, on the contrary, that if people are too different from one another, it's, it's very likely going to cause issues. But actually, people end up learning so much from one another that it actually created great bonds between the crew members. And we all essentially became a family time after time. And that was always my goal as the commander of a crew to make sure that we would get to that point where we're not just a bunch of professionals trying to you know, survive together under stressful conditions, but actually to like each other, to want to help each other, care for one another. And that is what made some of those missions be very successful. Um, so that's one thing. Yeah, diversity was unexpected and as a factor to be actually something that adds to the success. And thanks to the diversity, every mission was different for me and therefore also surprising in a way. Uh, but then I'll also add another thing that uh, was surprising how important it was, and I didn't really see it coming at first, was food. Food kind of became almost the be-all and end-all of every mission. If there, we didn't have good uh, cooks on the crew, the crew would suffer because they hated the food. They would just force themselves to eat it to get calories, basically. And that just like made people miserable and the mood in the crew was really bad. And, and that, of course, led to many other problems. Whereas if there was at least one person that could cook really well, because also so you have an idea, we're all eating kind of astronaut like freeze dried food. So everything is in the form of powder or these kind of granules that you have to rehydrate. And I kind of compare it to cooking beans. You have to soak these things in water for a while and then cook them for a while before they're edible. And so, yeah, if you don't have people who can cook well or, or make the most of these uh, astronaut-like ingredients, it can lead to problems. But if they know how to master those things well, it really led to some super happy moments on the missions. And people always had some cakes and things to look forward to or, or cakes were used as a way to cheer people up or reward people when something good happened. And so, yeah, the food just became so extremely important for every single mission. And I didn't realize it until, you know, I experienced it time after time myself. Uh, wow, that is so fascinating. Like, again, something you don't really think about, but like, I love good food so much. And just, yeah, those, like having a cake to celebrate or, you know, this, that and the other and like how important that is, you know, in our everyday lives or whatever, we all know, you know, for and obviously more important to some people than others, but like, you know, we, we all have to eat at the end of the day. But yeah, that's really fascinating. I think that's super interesting. And I think on the diversity element too, that's also a really fascinating kind of, you know, insight there. And again, building those bonds as basically a small community, right? How important that can be, well, that is then to the success or not of that mission, right? Definitely, Yeah. Yeah. This might be a really stupid question, but do you you have to take all the food with you? This isn't like a, you know, like, I don't know, where you have to set up like a, a farm on Mars or something like that. It's not that, is it? I mean, so no, actually, it's, it's a really good question because that's something that hasn't been resolved yet. I think the way it's likely going to go, but it may change because Mars still is like at least 10, 15 years away. But what's very likely to happen is that for the first missions, we can't rely on all the technology to work well and for food to grow fast in a greenhouse or something. So the crews are going to have to bring a lot of food with them as, as a backup in case things go wrong. So they'll probably bring a lot of food with them. 
Maybe it'll be like in, in The Martian, if you're familiar with the book or the movie, where some supplies are actually dropped off on the planet before the crew even arrives, and they may have like a resupply mission coming in at some point. So it's very likely that at the beginning, the crew will be really reliant on stuff they bring with them, whether it's food or oxygen or all the other things they need to survive. But at the same time, they are going to start growing things in greenhouses. They're going to put in place different types of so-called in-situ resource utilization. So these types of technologies that rely on using local materials, whether it's the local soil to then make breaks out of the soil and build you know, some stations or buildings using those bricks, or to extract water from the Martian surface and breaking the water down into hydrogen and oxygen. So you have another supply of oxygen, of course, another supply of water, and the hydrogen could be used as some kind of fuel. But setting up these technologies and being able to 3D print things or grow stuff in greenhouses will take time. So the first crew simply have to be ready to just rely on what they bring with them or what's already brought there in case the plant growing doesn't go well or the 3D printer breaks or, you know, whatever bad thing could happen. Yeah, that's really interesting too. Like, yeah, it'll be, I guess, I just think like thinking about some of those movies and things, not that I was going to mention movies, but yeah, that like, you know, having that plan out and then having, you know, the people arrive and then if that breaks, then what happens? And there's all those other, I guess, all those, that scenario planning that you have to do, right? So you've got all these, you know, backups and backups and backups. I'm really keen, or we want to move to the future, or want to actually, before we move to the future, any other projects that you want to mention now um, and give us a little bit of insight onto those? Um, sure. Maybe I'll mention the, the one I'm currently working on. So the Astro 7 Summits, actually here behind me on the pictures, uh, Kilimanjaro Mountain I, I climbed last year as, as part of this project. And the idea is to climb the tallest mountain on each continent. So those are the seven summits. And during those expeditions, I'll do research both relevant to space and climate change, but also outreach and educational projects. So with space, I mentioned earlier, uh, looking at what are the limits of life on Earth, you know, what kind of extreme organisms can we find here and whether we could find something similar elsewhere in space, knowing what the limitations of at least life on Earth are. And uh, so that's something, yeah, a project I've been working on with NASA for a long time, for example, looking at life in extreme environments in volcanic environments, such as in Hawaii, these lava caves I explored during the simulated space missions. We found some interesting data there, and hopefully we'll continue working like this uh, with NASA and other organizations uh, looking at these extreme environments on kind of yeah, the, the mountains and, and uh, the fragile ecosystems that are trying to survive there. Then we're also testing different technologies and to see how they can manage in these extreme environments and give people feedback based on that. Some technologies are actually useful, for example, from a safety perspective. They're a way to monitor where we are at all times and to use satellite communication to communicate with loved ones, but also people who may have to rescue us if something bad were to happen. And then basically all the way to the climate change related matters. So looking at how glaciers are receding, whether there's human pollution, even in these very normally pristine environments as things like microplastics that can get even into these high elevations. And then an important part is the outreach and education. So to communicate about all these things that I'm doing, explain to the public why I'm doing it, what I'm seeing, what I'm learning from these expeditions and what they can do to contribute either to the project. So for example, 
and during the Kilimanjaro expedition, we worked on an educational project where young people could compare the data I was collecting on Kilimanjaro with my team, uh, with what they can see in their backyard. So they would have these sensors to measure the humidity or look at light pollution. They can compare that with, you know, back home to what I was doing, but also to show people how each and every one of us can actually do something to help minimize the effects of climate change. How, you know, just taking care not to pollute the environment by leaving trash lying around. And actually, you know, if you go for a hike or a walk in the park or, or just anywhere, really take everything you brought there back with you. Don't don't leave trash around. And this is what will happen if if we don't take better care of our environment by, say, using our resources better, you know, by having a very consumeristic, materialistic type of life and not using things to the maximum or maybe buying more food than we actually need and then throwing things out. All that will accumulate and the 8 billion and more of us that are on this planet, you know, each of us can contribute to this in a good or bad way. And that's what I'm trying to point out is if we all at least make the slightest effort to take better care of our planet, it will have an impact on us, but most importantly, the the next generations. Mm. Uh, Fascinating work, amazing work that you're doing. And I think like linking both the like, again, that science element with the communication and the outreach, that they're both so important because, I mean, you can't have one without, well, you can do the science without the outreach, but then you don't get that impact, right? You do the outreach, but if there's no science behind it, you know, we all know what happens there. Yep. <laughs> you, you've talked about some of those elements, but just how do you, I guess, link the message of, you know, this space exploration, you know, all those types of things that you're doing. How do you link that with climate change when you are bringing out these messages? Oh, there's a lot of different ways. But one, one important thing to, to realize is that many of us who work in the space sector, you know, we're not just looking at going to the moon and bars as a, as a separate plan, like basically, oh, well, you know, we're just escaping to another planet and leaving Earth behind. But actually, a lot of the work in the space sector is focused on Earth. So even research that we're doing for the Moon and Mars, for example, to to see what we could grow in these extreme environments and or using those very limited resources on these planetary bodies to survive is actually something we can apply to us living better on Earth. Because if we can find a way to grow food on the Moon and Mars, we can definitely find ways to grow food in more extreme environments on Earth or to make some of these environments that that are becoming more extreme because of climate change to make them more habitable, more favorable for humans to be able to live there, but also to use and manage their resources better. So the the space research, you know, it is very Earth focused, even though it doesn't seem that way. And just if you think about all the satellites that are out there, most of them are pointing down on Earth to help us live here better in some shape or form. And so I try to kind of make that bridge between the two. And it's like, just because you're interested in space doesn't mean you're forgetting about Earth or you don't care about it or future, but actually the two, you know, go hand in hand. And even if we're planning for the future, we still need to think about the present. And, but also at the same time, our actions in the present will have an effect on the future and not just our personal future, but those living on this planet. So that's the kind of awareness I'm trying to raise in people and just just make them think a little bit more, you know, about how they individually can actually make a difference because every single one of us can. Mm. Well, speaking of the future, let's zoom to the future now. What are the emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, in terms of the space sector, 
I think actually it's become very popular again these days. So I feel like there's definitely a lot of talk about all of that. I think, you know, there's a focus, for example, now to, to go back to the moon, which is great. Mars is still being a bit forgotten, even though there's there's also trends where it kind of goes up and down in popularity. Um, but I think they're one of the things that isn't, say, talked about so much or people don't realize is just how challenging that endeavor is to go to Mars. But even to go back to the moon, they think, oh, well, we went there, you know, so many decades ago. Why why is it so difficult to go back? But there are many reasons for that. And just to, to say it briefly, one of them is just simply political and, and related to finance. You know, when uh, humans went to the moon in the 20th century, there was a big political motivation. Therefore, also a lot of money was put into the space race. And that's what led to certain results. And that has changed dramatically since then. So simply, it is now taken a while, but also political will to get us closer to going back to the moon. And in the meantime, also the commercial sector in space has really developed, which is helping in a way create competition so far, mostly healthy competition, that will also uh, create some progress in that direction. But so that's why the moon is now kind of becoming more tangible and something people are talking about. Um, but Mars is still kind of staying in the back. And most importantly, because of the finances and again, politics, um, big space agencies simply haven't come up with a long term or not, not long enough plan to really help humans get to Mars, because it's not something you're going to do and say a a four-year political window of a certain president's administration, it will be something that multiple, maybe even generations will have to work on together. And so in, in many countries, they haven't really gotten to that point yet. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, they talk about Mars, but they don't realize all the stuff that's kind of behind it. And many times it is politics and money. And the other thing is, you know, even though we may have some companies that are able to build rockets that could potentially take us to Mars or, or other places. Going to another planetary body isn't just about the rockets. It's not just about the vehicle. You need the people to be ready for it. You need to have all those resources we talked about and all the backup plans so that to make sure that the mission will be successful. And to get to that point where everything is really truly tested and ready to go and the right kind of crew is selected and prepared that takes years and decades, and again, money to be invested in science and technology to get to that point. So I think maybe that's something that people aren't realizing is that without all of those things coming together, and people from around the world working together, and also investing into these things, we're simply not going to get closer to Mars. So maybe that's something that, you know, it's kind of in the background, us in the space sector, we know about it. But maybe the public doesn't truly understand that, uh, understandably. And that's why it may seem strange to them, like, oh, why is, why is it so difficult to go to Mars? Or why haven't we gone back to the moon sooner? Yeah, no, it is interesting. And again, I guess not something I think about on a day-to-day -day occasion, um, but of course it comes up in the media every now and then. I guess like in terms of Mars and the moon, thinking about all those challenges, like do you think that we'll get there in the next decade or so? I think it really depends. I think the moon, it's realistic that we'll get back there, maybe even by the end of this decade. Currently, there is political will in that direction. There definitely have been a lot of developments, technologically speaking, that will hopefully allow for that to happen. I just hope that when it will happen, it will happen in a in a safe and I would say beneficial way for humanity. And the reason I say that is because 
some of these companies that are competing amongst themselves to either be financed by a space agency to, to fulfill a project like getting humans to the moon, or maybe they're competing amongst themselves to deliver other things into space or to the moon. Sometimes that competition can become unhealthy, and then measures are taken that aren't very safe. And when it's, you know, just to do with a robot or something, if a robot mal malfunctions or crashes, it is sad and I, it's pollution in space too. But it's not, let's say, the end of the world. But, you know, if humans get hurt in the process, that will have huge consequences. And not to mention, of course, that it would be devastating for the people involved and, and anyone who get, would get hurt or, or worse. So I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, some people may be more worried about their ego and achieving certain goals and willing to take on risks that are simply shouldn't be allowed. And that is why things take so long in the space sector, because you have to account for a huge amount of risks and, and bad things that could happen. So that is kind of my own personal concern is, I think we can get to the moon pretty quickly, but I'm worried some people to get there quicker will take risk that they really shouldn't be taking. And then the same goes for Mars. Mars, I feel, is still more like 15 years away at the rate we're going currently, though maybe there'll be some big breakthrough in the near future that will change that. But again, you know, it's not just about sending a rocket to another planet. It's about having everything ready to go so that the humans can go there safely and come back. And that is a whole other cup of tea. And, and we're not ready for that yet. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's yeah, super interesting, but I agree. I think there's so many those factors and then getting the people involved and like we, you know, the backup plan for the backup plan and you're not just getting there, but you have to live there for a certain period of time before you can come back and all those type of things as well. And even things like you were talking about earlier around the diversity of the crew and that success and, you know, are all of those things, the human elements being thought about as we move through this space as well. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, cool. I'm just looking at the time. It's been, oh, it's gone so quickly. Well, you're doing amazing stuff. I, yeah, like I said, I, I've been so excited to have you on the podcast and, um, and been following you along as well. Now, I have one last question, and which is really easy. But before that, so everyone wants to know, do you think there are aliens out there? <laughs> Uh, I personally think there are, though, you know, my version of aliens is more like microbes, so very small beings. I think the likelihood of there being other life like that in the universe is pretty huge. Uh, if you just think about, you know, look at the night sky, how many stars there are. And, you know, if you imagine if each of those stars has a planet potentially that could maybe have life on it or, or some even a fraction of those stars, if they could have potentially some uh, life on those planets already, the chances are huge. And then if we look, you know, at all the galaxies that are out there and how many stars and planets each galaxy has, simply the chances for at least some simple life to exist out there are pretty huge. If we're talking about more complex life, that that's a whole other matter. And I still think the chances for that are are pretty high. But whether we're going to find something that's similar to us or or that can communicate with us. That is uh, definitely a whole other story and chances are much lower, but you never know. And I uh, remain optimistic and hopeful for um, a, a nice civilization out there that, you know, is not going to come and do War of the Worlds, but instead is going to maybe try and create a, a good contact and something from which we can actually learn something from each other. 
Awesome. Thank you for indulging me. It's been so great to have you on the podcast. I really, really have enjoyed this conversation. And yeah, I I will continue to follow along with you on LinkedIn. So just one last question. How can people connect with you? Uh, Yes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, And yeah, I hope um, others might be interested and would want to follow along too. I am present on different types of social media, as you mentioned, LinkedIn under my name, uh, Michaela Musilova, PhD. Uh, I have, uh, let's go, Instagram and Twitter, where my handle is astro underscore Michaela. And I also have an official Facebook page, Dr. Michaela Musilova. And that's where I post uh, regularly. I'm also working on a website right now, which will have kind of all the information contained. And soon I will be uh, sharing um, documentary movies that I'm filming during these different expeditions through the Astro 7 Summits project. So I will also have a YouTube channel eventually where I will be sharing that too. So hopefully some of that can be of interest to you. And and thank you very much uh, for following along. Awesome. We'll put all the links in the show notes. But yes, for now, have a great rest of your day. Um, And thank you again for coming on to the podcast. I look forward to our next conversation. Sounds good. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And yeah, definitely love to talk with you some more. Let's do it. Thanks, Michaela. We'll talk soon. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Bye. Are you looking for an engaging speaker, MC, or facilitator for your next big event? Then we've got you covered. Zoe is a go-to speaker, MC, and conversation facilitator with a difference. She's a master at simplifying the complex and making connections you might never see. Book Zoe for your next event. Email hello at mysmart.community or head over to her speaker page, www.mysmart.community forward slash speaking. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.